Good morning, FCBC Walnut family and friends. Reopening continues. Let me go ahead and begin there. As you know, the month of August is when we're setting aside as a church every single Sunday an opportunity for soft opening so that we could prepare for outdoor worship in our parking lot so that we could tweak the details and the AV and the processes that are required so that we could train people to be prepared and so that we could also one step at a time evaluate. Well, this morning we had our second soft opening at 8 a.m. in the morning. Next week, if you want to join us, there's a link in the bulletin where you can watch us live on Zoom. Please continue to pray for us as we engage in this process and open it up one bit at a time so that, Lord willing, pretty soon you'll be able to be invited back to worship on campus and as well as worship in your homes, but we'll be able to open it fully to the English congregation. These are exciting times and God is doing great disciple-making things in our lives. And so please continue to journey with us as we go. Meanwhile, a few announcements from the Digital Bulletin. The month of August is zero month for us, which is when children's ministry and student ministry, we promote, we turn the corner, and we move into a brand new school year. And so if you have a child who is in elementary age, I want to encourage you to consider registering them for AWANA. AWANA is a wonderful partnership between the church and the home that brings together a focus on scripture through intergenerational mentoring and disciple making. So this is an opportunity for you if you have children who are in that age to be able to jump in, to be able to be part of a class and to be able to make and build friendships, but also just to be able to engage on a regular basis in the word of God with people from our church family. If there's a ministry that really reveals church as family on a parental level, it is Awana. We can see how both sides are so integral. And so please consider joining us for this and register your child. Meanwhile, if you had joined us from the beginning and you watched the pre-service slides, you noticed that Pastor Kevin had the opportunity to share the vision for Unicorn for this upcoming year, as well as having the counselors introduce themselves personally to you. Don't worry if you missed it, it'll come on immediately after the online worship service so you can watch it again. But the reason why I wanted to do that is because Unicoi, which is the name of our youth fellowship from 7th grade to 12th grade, covering middle school and high school, is also another church as family disciple making endeavor between the home and the church. And we have this wonderful opportunity where we have our youth counselors invest in the lives of the students and they grow in groups and discussion and relationship building around the word of God and how to live it out. So please pray for them, especially as school has gone online and everything is virtual. This is where the people of God stands out and stands together to still be united. And maybe there's opportunities in which ministries can form where in-person encounters can take place. People could bless one another. People could really care for each other. People can encourage one another through this time. We look forward to all these things because this is the outflow of the gospel at work in our hearts and in our church. So in pastoral prayer today, later, I'm going to go ahead and pray for both Awana and Unicoi as we continue on in zero month in a school year. So just want to prepare you for that as we go forward in this time. Now, a couple more updates. Thank you all for joining us for the Red Cross Blood Drive. It was a wonderful success, and we're going to continue this partnership. The updated schedule has us hosting the next blood drive 
on Friday, October 16th. So if you're able to give, please go ahead and go to the bulletin and sign up using that link. If you want to volunteer, please email assimilation. I'm sorry, please email relief at fcbcwalnut.org. Along the way, we're going to be continuing to connect you to groups and connect you to teams. If you want to commit to a group, if you want to serve on a team, please email assimilation. Also, we're going to be having open enrollment for all of the groups that will be accepting new members during the month of September. And so you'll hear more about this. And this is such an important part of the discipleship pathway to be committed to a group of people to then be sent out outside our four walls where most of us are right now almost all the time. And so there's no better way to follow Jesus than to follow Jesus with his people. So if any questions, please go ahead and email assimilation at fcbcwalnut.org. Now let me go ahead and pray for us during this time where we will lift up the school year but we'll also continue to lift up our church as we prepare for reopening. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, God, for this morning. I thank you, Lord, and praise you for the service that we had this morning in the parking lot. We thank you, Father, for the word being preached, for songs being sung, for prayers being offered up by your people where we're able to see one another and able to be closer to each other. Father, we want to ask you for your guidance as we continue to prepare for reopening and we thank you, Father, for this month of August in which so much has been accomplished. And we praise you for the faithfulness of the task force, of everyone working hard behind the scenes, all the decisions and solutions that have been made and proposed. We thank you for your faithfulness and getting our hands dirty so that we're able to be in the trenches, in the efforts of disciple making and using everything that we do for your glory and to for your people to work together for your people to communicate better and for your people to collaborate as one. We thank you, Father, that this reopening reveals to us the oneness of the unity that we have in Christ. Help us to continue to build on that unity as we take the steps forward to our official opening. Father, we also want to pray, Lord, for this school year, which is virtual. Father, we know, Lord, that for students and parents, for teachers and administrators, this has been a difficult time of adjustment, of perseverance, of solving problems, and of frustration. Lord, we know that the students want to see one another's faces for real, but they aren't able to, except for behind a screen. That they want to interact with their teachers, with their questions answered in a more personal way, but that's not possible in the same fashion right now. And so, Lord, we want to pray, Father, that now the school year started, pretty much for everyone, we ask God that you would help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to be reminded of how you will steer us through this, how you will anchor us through this, and help us to engage the best that we can, whether as a student or a parent, whether as a teacher or administrator, so that we're able to grow through the process of education. And we also pray, Father, for conversations to take place in the home between youth and parents between young ones and their grandparents. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to engage one another, especially during this time when people aren't able to see each other face to face. God, that you would make the home truly a place of refuge, truly a place of relationship building, truly a place of walls being broken down and relationships being strengthened. So we thank you so much, God, 
for the opportunity that we have as your people to look to you during this time. And we look to you with all of our heart, with all of our trust, and with all of our dependence. Finally, we want to pray for our church as we continue to consider how we could be salt and light in this community during this time. We ask you, God, for wisdom, even as we're taking steps towards building out the discipleship pathway and we're taking steps towards committing to groups and serving on teams. Help us to think of ways in which all of that could be a blessing to our neighbors and a blessing to the world. We thank you, Father, for all the ways in which you have provided for our church. And so, God, we pray, Lord, that through what you have given to us, that we will minister to one another and serve one another. We pray, Father, for the health of those who are weak and who are recovering. We pray, Father, for those who are caretakers of, of those who are weak and who are sick. We pray, Father, for those who have been distanced to where they're not able to uh, support their loved ones or be able to see their church friends as often. And we know, Lord, that that's family to us. And so there's certainly loneliness and brokenness there. We ask God for your continued comfort. And we pray, Father, then all of this, that the church would rise up in a way that demonstrates what it looks like when we are a people transformed from the inside out, that we love you and that we can forsake the world so that we could be light in the world. Lord, lead us in all of these ways. Teach us, grow us, stretch us so that our faith impacts and blesses others. Help us to be disciple makers from a vibrant church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning, FCBC Walnut. Today we are nearing the end of our study in Ezra. So there's this week, and then next week's our final message. And the title of today's message is Christ, Crisis Amplifies Our Need for Christ. Crisis Amplifies Our Need for Christ. And this is part one of two. Today we're going to see from our passage in Ezra that our relationship with God must take priority over our relationship with others, whether that's marriage, family, or simply loving your neighbor. And of course, we are not saying that relationships aren't important, but primarily our relationship with God is the most important relationship. You see, what happens when we fail to love God more than any other pers person or any other pursuits is that our hearts began to draw near and our hearts began to chase after the various idols of this world. And many times, idolatry is baked into the relationships that we pursue. We see this in this world. When we pursue people, whether it's, whether it's, it's, it's a romantic relationship or whether we pursue people because there's something that we can gain from having a, a better relationship with them, whether it's, it's, it's a better job, whether it's some resources, whether it's, it's some type of a boost to our identity because we are associated with a certain person. When we pursue these people and our relationships are built, we tend to chase after what they have or what they have to offer us. And this is precisely what we see in Ezra chapter 10. God's people, Israel, they faced a national crisis. This was a national crisis that was not only threatening their relationships, it was threatening their identity as God's covenant people. You see, there was no way that God's people could be a people who worshipped a foreign god, foreign gods or idols. And what we see in this passage is that Israel had taken foreign wives. Their wives had led a number of the Israelites, including some of the spiritual leaders, to turn to the foreign idols of these wives. In this sense... Israel's vertical relationship with God was broken 
and that impacted their horizontal relationships with one another. Now keep in mind that Ezra's audience, they were still under the Old Testament law. They were under the Old Covenant. And so this was before the time of Christ. So in many ways, their solution to deal with the problem of sin was not only imperfect, it was flawed. It was not meant to be the final and sure way to deal with sin. So what we see at the end of Ezra is an anticlimactic ending which points us to the need for Christ. You see, when we say that we must love God more than any other person or pursuit and then all of our relationships will come into play in a right manner, when we say we need to love God first and then we'll be able to love others rightly, this is easier said than done, of course, right? But I think why it's hard is because many times how we think of our Christian faith, even myself, is that we think in a semi-Old Testament or an Old Covenant way. For example, when I think of what does it mean to love God, I look at principles. I look at how to, how do you do this? Give me a five-step process. Pray every morning for five minutes, read my Bible for ten, etc., right? So, you know, go to church on Sundays, attend this group group, or attend this class. These are all great things. But we tend to say, okay, God, what are the rules? What are the steps? What are the principles? And sometimes, often, what we forget is that apart from a relationship with Christ, we, wouldn't even, we would, would not even believe in those principles. Apart from a relationship with Christ, we wouldn't have any power to apply any of those principles, at least in a lasting manner. And so the answer is that, is that we, must, we must turn to Christ as the answer. That's what I hope to show you today, that there's a better way than principles. There's a better way than just give me five steps of how to. And I'm also going to talk about that's how oftentimes we mistakenly interpret our Bibles. We read our Bibles looking for the principles, and then we leave with the principles, and we forget about Christ. And so that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to start with point number one. Point number one today is the deeper problem. The deeper problem. And we see this in Ezra chapter chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. <clears throat> the deeper problem is idolatry. The deeper problem is that idolatry was destroying Israel's relationship and their identity. You see, on a surface level, we see that the problem in Ezra 10 is intermarriage. That's foreign marriage. The problem of taking foreign wives. But that's just a surface issue. The deeper issue is the idolatry that came with those foreign marriages. But even before they misapplied the law and went and took foreign wives, their hearts were already given over to foreign gods. You see what I'm saying? Their hearts were already not loving God. They did not have a desire for God, which led them to to uh, hurt their, uh, their vertical relationship was flawed, and that impacted their horizontal relationships. And that's where we begin today. So I want to be very clear before we read the text, is that there is nothing wrong with marrying someone for, from a foreign race, if it is done legitimately. There is nothing wrong in the Old Covenant under the Old Covenant, of marrying a foreigner, so as long as that individual that you're marrying, that Gentile, worships Yahweh and converts to Judaism. You see this example. Uh, there, there's, there's quite a few in the Old Testament, but some prominent ones. Rahab was a Gentile. Moses married a Cushite woman. 
You see this in the story of Ruth. You see that Bathsheba was also not a, a pure Jew to begin with, right? And out of her comes, out of Bathsheba comes Solomon, and eventually that, that becomes, uh, leads to the line uh, that leads to Messiah, even though Solomon is broken. And so there are more examples that I won't cite here, but the problem was not intermarriage per se. You see, the problem was the idolatry that came with the foreign marriages. Now with that, take God's word and, and look with me at Ezra chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Ezra 10, let me read to you verses 1 and 2. It says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Now there's a few things I want you to see here. First, notice that Ezra is lamenting and he is confessing the sins of Israel. He's mediating on behalf of Israel. Keep in mind that Ezra, this did not happen under his watch. Ezra had come into Jerusalem much later than the first group of returnees. And, you know, he's preaching the word of God. People are revived in, in the earlier chapters. And all of a sudden, someone tells Ezra, Ezra, I, I hate to break it to you. I know you're having a party and celebrating. I hate to break it to you, but actually there's a serious problem. The people of Israel, including many of the spiritual leaders, have taken foreign wives and they're worshiping idols. And so Ezra, he is, he is going before the Lord, even though he himself is not guilty of the sin. Right? He, he's going before the Lord, and in a Christ-like way, he's mediating on behalf of Israel. And it says that he made confession, weeping, casting himself down before the house of God. A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For, so he was not trying to put on a show. In Eastern cultures, especially in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, this was a way of mourning. You go to certain funerals and they are wailing and crying. And sometimes I know that it can be just to go through the procedure and the ritual. But we know that Ezra was truly broken because later on he goes into a separate room where nobody is watching and he continues to fast and he continues to go weeping and crying before the Lord. His heart is broken before God. He is greatly disappointed. A crisis is at hand because he knows that idolatry leads to a loss of identity. A breaking of covenant means that you are no longer God's covenant people. And he was afraid of the fate of Israel because of this. But his public repentance and confession was effective in drawing an assembly of men, women, and children. They gathered to him out of Israel. For the people whipped, weeped bitterly with him. So the people joined Ezra in weeping. Now, I want you to think for a moment what this would, what would happen here. Okay, Could you imagine if the leaders of our nation, be it the White House or the Capitol building, the leaders of our state, let's, let's go there, the leaders of our state in Sacramento, could you imagine, first and foremost, if they loved God, if they loved Christ, and if they and, and if we saw, if the news syndicates caught them 
on camera outside of the Capitol building weeping because of the evil in this world. Weeping and mourning and lamenting the brokenness of our society and praying to Jesus Christ. Could you imagine what that would do for churches? Could you imagine what that, that would do morally for people? That's what's happening in Israel. What's happening in Israel is something that we would never see in the state of California, right? Or in certain parts of this nation. Now keep in mind that, that Jerusalem is not a suburban spread. It's not, this is not Irvine, California, right? This is Jerusalem. It's a dense city if you've ever been there. And so if you have, you have all these buildings close to each other and homes are built on top of each other and at the center of ancient Jerusalem was the temple. And this is where Ezra is weeping in confession. So you can imagine that Ezra is at the center of the city. He's surrounded by all these walls and buildings, people living in these buildings. And as they're looking out of their homes, looking out of their windows, and they're they're looking to the center of the city, they see and hear their spiritual leader mediating, confessing sin, and going before the Lord. You see, the problem of divorce and intermarriage did not happen under his watch, yet he goes and mediates. Now, verse 2, we, we read about a, a man named Shechaniah. Shechaniah, in verse 2, comes up with an idea. Now, we don't know too much about Shechaniah. Some scholars say that Shechaniah himself was not purely a Jew, that he was a, he was a, a product, if you will, of a mixed marriage, and he himself had converted fully into Judaism. But we cannot... Uh, say that for certain. Uh, there, are, there are a few Shechaniahs, and we're not sure which one this is, but we assume from a clear contextual reading of the text that this Shechaniah is a good guy. This Shechaniah, he is not listed among the list of guilty parties at the end of Ezra chapter 10. He seems to agree with Ezra's sentiment. He, he takes the worship of Israel and the monotheistic worship of Yahweh seriously and idolatry bothered him. Intermarriage bothered him. So he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a plan. And, and I, wa- I just want you to see a few things from verse 2. It says this, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the, so- the sons of Alam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith. So again, Shechaniah, even if he himself is not listed among the guilty, he, he sees the corporate identity that when some of Israel break faith, They all break faith because Israel was to be a covenant people of God. This is how they understood the relationship as and the and the seriousness of being God's people. It says, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Now I want you to pay attention to the order there. Number one, we have broken faith with God. That the the, whore, the vertical relationship takes priority. It is because the vertical relationship is broken. Therefore, the horizontal relationships are sinful and flawed. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. They saw the intermarriage as a religious problem. Do you see this? Now, beloved, I want, I want you to hear me on this as I speak to you from my heart for a moment. There are a lot of things that will not land you in jail. But apart from Christ, they will land you in hell. There are things that are not illegal because they are under the law of the states, but they are sinful before God. And so we see this from the scriptures here. 
We see it that, that if you were to go ahead and commit adultery, you're not going to end up in jail. Right? If you were to go ahead and have, have a, a secret family on the side, you're not going to end up in jail. If you uh, divorce your husband or wife, you have the right to do that legally in the states and according to the government's laws. But when you come before God, you are under a different ordinance. It is recognizing that we have responsibility to prioritize our vertical relationship with God, which ought to dictate all of our horizontal relationships. And so you see that, that this is a faith issue. And this is why this is not dealt with in a Persian court. This is dealt with among the religious people of God. What we have here is a religious problem. It is a faith issue. It is a problem of worship. And as a result, you have the broken marriages, and we need to get that priority straight. And so let me give you a little bit of context of what's happening here. The Jewish men, they were divorcing their Jewish wives. The Jewish wives that they had married, and most of the men, keep in mind, we don't have too much background about the social stratification, but keep in mind that, that the returnees are coming back to occupied lands. These lands that are, that are filled with people who have established businesses and lifestyles. And you have these returnees coming in, and if they don't have a lot of wealth, and if they don't have a lot of finances, they're working from the bottom. But you're always going to have among the Israelites and the returnees some elites. And so, and so you're, you're looking at some of these men who are probably older, more established, and they're probably well off, and they're able to attract some of these Gentile women that would be attracted to them. Right? That's the first thing we need to consider in terms of the original context and just adding from the history. The second thing is these are all men. No, I'm not criticizing men. No, I'm not, no, I'm not going woke on you and, and saying the women are not sinful or, or that it's all men, uh, that, that, are, that men are the problem. No, I don't believe that at all. What I'm going is, is when you look at the context, when you look at the list of names from chapter, eight, chapter 10, verses 18 to 44, these are all male names. These are all men. These are all masculine in the original languages. This is, these are all men. So what we know is that the guilty party are most likely men. And here's the sad thing. When you read the list, many of them, many of them were spiritual leaders. They were among the spiritual leaders of Israel. And so you can see that if the spiritual leaders have gone into idolatry, then what does that mean for the laymen? What does that mean for the rest of Israel? Now there's a, there's a, so if you consider what's happening here is that these Jewish men were leaving their wives of their age, uh, much older, and they were leaving their wives for a much younger Gentile woman, then this in God's eyes sees that their original divorce was illegitimate. These Jewish men who left their Jewish wives, that divorce is not legitimate in the eyes of God. Therefore, in the eyes of God, they are still held accountable and rightfully married to their original Jewish wives. In this sense, these men have committed adultery. Not just idolatry, but adultery. Now in verse 2, this word in the Hebrew that's used for married is not the typical word used for married. If you read in the Old Testament, the word typically used for married translates to a phrase that says, take a wife for himself. To take for yourself a wife. To take a wife. That is the, that is the phrase that's typically used of marriage. But the Hebrew word that's used here, 
that's translated as married means to dwell with. To dwell with. So the picture that you have here to belabor the point is that these Jewish men were married to their Jewish wives. They wrongfully, illegitimately divorced their Jewish wives and now they're dwelling, living with these Gentile foreign wives and now they're worshiping these foreign idols of these wives. You see the picture. They're just having a live-in. They're dwelling together. They're cohabitating together, but they are not married. This is not a, a rightful divorce for rightful reasons and then a remarriage. That's not what's happening. This is completely wrong to begin with because, again, their vertical relationship is sinful and broken. And that's why this is such a serious problem. Right? This is such a serious problem. And what we understand as believers is that we have hope because Christ redeems both our vertical and our horizontal relationships. Uh, apart from Christ, all you have is the law. You can know what the law says. I mean, many in Israel, they knew the law. The law was baked into their hearts, but they could not obey the law. The idolatry of this world, the temptation of this world, the lust of this world was stronger than what the law could dictate. And that's why you see Israel throughout the Old Testament falling into the same sins over and over again. Did, the, did they not learn from Solomon the consequences of taking a foreign wife uh, and, and worshiping idols? Did they not learn from their history? Yet, Israel finds themselves in sin once again. So that is, that is the first point. The first point is the deeper problem. The deeper problem is not intermarriage. The deeper problem is idolatry. It is a failure to love God above all. And that impacted their relationships, namely their marriage in this context. Point number two is the sad solution. Apart from Christ, their solution is sad. This is a sad solution, but it was, the, it was probably the best thing that they could think of during that time. And at least God doesn't uh, intervene at any point to stop them. And this is a lesson for Israel to learn, but it also amplifies this crisis amplifies the deep and desperate need for another way, a need for the Messiah to come. But I want you to notice in verse 3, there's a proposal and plan to put away or send away all these foreign wives. Before I read it to you, I just want to explain this word once again in the Hebrew. Right? It says to put away, to send away all these wives. Now, the question that automatically comes to mind is that isn't divorce something that God hates? How does two wrongs make a right? How could they now divorce their foreign wives? Is, isn't God against divorce? Don't they have family and children now? And that's why this is a sad solution. And what you need to know is that the Hebrew word used for divorce here is, is not the same word typically used elsewhere for divorce. It literally means to put away or to send away or to cause to go away. And I'll explain that when we get there. So I don't want you to get alarmed that this is inconsistent with Malachi, where it says God hates divorce, right? Or, or, the, um, or 1 Corinthians, where it teaches that if you've married an unbeliever, and if that unbeliever has not deserted you, that you ought to stay in that marriage, right? This, this, this teaching here does not contradict the rest of Scripture. It is a different word altogether in the Hebrew. Now, let me read this to you. Let's start with verses 3 to 6. In verses 3 to 5, first... Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives. Notice that the word here is not divorce, it's put away, as translated in the ESV, all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord, 
and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. So once again, this is Shechaniah saying to Ezra, he sees Ezra, he calls him lowercase, my Lord, my leader. And then, uh, and then there's a capital G-O-D at the commandment of our God according to the law. Let it be done according to the capital law of the Lord. Let's obey the law of Moses, in other words. Verse 4, arise, let's do something, arise, for it is your task. And we are with you, Ezra. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said, and they took the oath. Right? Now the word put away, literally send away, like I, I mentioned, is not the same word used for divorce. It literally means the cause to go out. So it's simply what's happening is that these Jewish men who would repent, who had taken foreign wives, they are called to tell their foreign wives to go home. That's, that's what we would assume, right? Now, there's no detail if there's any financial provision given. Uh, we just know that this is, this is a horrible situation. This is a horrible consequence. They would send these foreign wives back to their homeland or back from where they came from, back to their, their families. And if there's children involved, which we know there are, then these children are also sent away now without a father. So you see fatherless becoming a problem because of sin, right? And then is there reconciliation that's required with their Jewish wives? We assume that that takes place, that that is required, but we're not sure from the text if that actually happened, right? So once again, this is not an ideal situation. Now let's be clear, Malachi chapter 2, Malachi is a contemporary of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, and Malachi teaches that divorce is bad, and that God hates divorce, yet he allows for this sending away, a not a divorce, but a sending away, because idolatry had to be dealt with. You see, when you look at the Ten Commandments, even the heart, the hearts of the Old Testament law, you see that the first set of commandments deal with the vertical relationship, and the rest of the Ten Commandments deal with the horizontal relationships. And if you don't get the first part right, you're not going to get the second part right. Right, And so, so what, what we see here is the dire and desperate response that Israel had to love God first. And this was the cost, a broken family. Right, This was the cost. They had to love God first. And they had to get the first part, the more important part of the Ten Commandments right in removing the idolatrous relationships in order for them to rightly reconcile any relationship. Now verse 6. Notice verse 6 that Ezra retreats, right? It says, Then Ezra withdrew before the, from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jeho, Jeho, Jehohanan and the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, water for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exile. So he continues to be brokenhearted. Now I want to make a statement here once again where it just adds context of how important Israel is as a type of people of God pointing towards the church and pointing towards Christ and how they are very different from the, from the secular uh, nations. Keep in mind that earlier we see that Ezra had authority from the state. You guys know that. That Ezra had authority from the Persian government. He could exercise the sword, which means he had Romans 13 type of authority. That the Persian emperor gave him authority to govern and to lead uh, in a way where he could punish crime and he could deal with this. 
But I want you to notice what's, what's happening. Ezra is involved, but what, what does he do, right? Verse 5, the idea comes from him. In verse 5, he says, okay, if this is well with you, he talks to the spiritual leaders and the leaders who actually are healthy in their relationship with God and who agree with him. And he says, okay, you guys see, see that it's done. And he retreats. And later on, when you see this process, Ezra's leading from the back, but it's really the elders and the spiritual leaders who are, who are healthy in their relationship with God leading the process. What's happening here? Once again, guys, this is not a state issue. I don't think the Persian government cared about intermarriage or idolatry or foreign marriage. They didn't care about that. This was a religious issue. Right, so what, what does Ezra do? He, he retreats saying, I'm not going to use my Persian authority to deal with this. In fact, the spiritual leaders who are healthy, they're going to deal with this. This is a religious issue. This is a religious issue. You haven't sinned against Persia. You've sinned against God. And therefore, you need to deal with God. And you know what? The people did not respond. They, I don't know if they would have responded uh, to the Persian government. If they did, it would be just out of, uh, out of uh, submission, out of fear of losing their lives. But here they are submitting because they fear God. They realize that they've broken covenant. And so this is an example we see of the priority of our relationship with God takes precedence over our relationship to secular society. Now you see in verses 7 and 8, the proclamation went out and the people assembled. Now notice what's happening. Verse 7, let me read it to you. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the return exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited. So who are these officials? This would be the, the elders. These are the religious leaders of Israel. All his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of exiles. You see what's happening here is that this ban is a temple ban. Once again, this is a religious punishment. Banned from the congregation. The language of congregation is religious. The ingathering of God's covenant people of exiles who would return, you would be cast out of this people. You wouldn't be able to go to the temple. You wouldn't be able to have your sins forgiven. You wouldn't be able to have your sins atoned for. This is a religious solution because this is a religious problem. Sometimes we don't think fighting with our wives or, or a broken relationship with home, we don't see that as religious. We see that as, as social or relational or psychological. It is religious. It is, it is spiritual. It is primarily a problem of God. If you have problems with your marriage, if I have problems, you know, having an argument with my wife, my first and foremost sin is against God. If I have problems with my children or my children have problems with me, my first and foremost problem is with God. If my heart is not right with God, then all my relationships will be broken. If I don't love my neighbor, then it's because I don't love God. If I have a hard time forgiving someone, because it's because I haven't really tasted of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ or I'm struggling to exercise faith in it, right? Same for you. Our relational problems all root back to our relationship with God. That's what we see here, right? And so I want you once again to see the religious influence uh, punishment here. The word forfeits, to forfeit all your property. This word should be translated under the ban. That's what it means. There's under the ban. And under the ban meant that whatever was taken was devoted to the temple treasury, 
This is a common word or phrase used in the Old uh, Testament. Is is that you, your property would be confiscated, forfeited, and you would give it over to the temple treasury to be used for the things of God. This is again a religious punitive punishment and discipline. It seems drastic. And then it says banned from the congregation once again. Right? You wouldn't be able to worship. That's what's taken away from you. You don't go to jail. You don't go to the Persian court. You don't get to go to church. That's what happens. You understand this. You don't reconcile your relationship. You don't get to take communion. You don't get to go to church. You can't worship. And you can't have Christ unless you repent. But brothers and sisters, this is the strict law apart from Jesus Christ. Does God forgive? Yes, but you need to go to him. Does God forgive? Yes, but you need to turn to him. That's what we see strongly taught in this passage. Now I want you to see the next few verses, verses 9 to 11. It says, then, verse 9, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month, and on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter, because of the heavy rain. Now, a few things you need to know here. Right, three days is enough to, in, in the close proximity of, of these lands, and this time three days is enough time for the word to get out and the people to travel to Jerusalem. And it was the ninth month, so this would be between November and December. And in the Jewish calendar, this is the heavy season of heavy rain. There's heavy rainfall. But it didn't matter. The people were trembling. They were coming in repentance, and they were willing to sit in the open square because of, uh, despite the heavy rain. They were Baptists to begin with. I'm just kidding. But I know some of us don't like to come in the sun, but I want, I want to invite you that if your heart is repentant, if you really want to come before God and come back, and if you're able to, to come. And if you're not able to because of health reasons, we completely understand that and we love you. And that's why we're pre-recording this message for you. But for some of you, if you don't want to come simply because of the heat, I want you to take heed to this. Is your heart turned towards God? I want you to also see that it is a privilege to be able to gather as the people of God. And sometimes part of not being able to gather, we don't know what God is doing, but sometimes God is doing his purifying work. He's asking for repentance. He's seeing if his people's hearts will turn back to him. Right now you look at verse 10. And in verse 10 it says, And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from His foreign wives. Now, this is powerful. This is a two-verse sermon. I, I suppose that they're all being baptized by immersion right now in heavy rain. The rain falls falling, and Ezra doesn't have, have time for a three-point Baptist sermon, so he makes, he makes his sermon in, in, in less than a minute, and, he, and it works. He says, he stood up, and he says, you've broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. He simply says, this is your sin, now here's what you need to do. You need to confess to the Lord, the God of your fathers, to do his will. You need to separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. You need to break out of those relationships and send those wives and your children away, even if you love your children, from these newly dwellings and, and, and 
inappropriate relationships. And the people agree. This is the power of the Word of God. The power of the Word of God coming through the man of God when people's hearts are softened in turn. God is working here. Now you look at the response of the people. I want you to see the positive response of repentance in verses 12 to 15. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice. Meaning what? They all agree. They all agree. They did not have to call a business meeting. They did not say, let's call a special business meeting. Well, let's see if we can have this meeting in the rain. Right? Instead, they said, it must be done. One vote. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice. It is so. We must do as you have said. Notice that the people respond to the word of God. The response is a call to repentance and the process of repentance will take time. Look at verses 13 to 15. But the people are many and it is time of heavy it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open nor is this a task for one day or for two days for we have greatly transgressed in this manner. Now look at verse 14. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times. So they're going to set up a schedule that's much better than the DMV. This is not like getting your real ID. You, it's actually going to get done. It says, let our officials stand for the, for the whole assembly. Let in all of our cities who've taken foreign wives come at appointed times with them, the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Notice verse 14, that the guilty men came before their local elders. I want you to consider this, that every, in the New Testament, every church is responsible to discipline and care for and love their members. If there is sin within this church, it's up to our pastors and our deacons to come together and to help with the situation. We don't call on another church to come in, right? Unless the pastors are corrupt, then we might call for help from a denomination leader. Uh, but but we're, we are also not responsible to police the sins of members from other churches and technically we don't have jurisdiction over our attenders who are not members of the church but what we see here is a is a type of religious membership where notice that Ezra doesn't have a, once again this is not a government thing dealing with people at large and this is not some type of, of of Jerusalem council dealing with people that they did not know what what they did was ultimately wise they said go to each city the men who have taken foreign wives they need to go to the elders meaning the, their spiritual leaders who knew them personally they knew their Jewish wives and, and they know the situation and they know if they have children they know what has gone on here with the, with the dwelling with the foreign wives and how many children are involved. And if there's any type of care or love that can be done, that's probably determined at the local level. You see, once again, that when their relationship with God gets right, this is not a cut and dry process. There is love being happening that being played out here. That when their relationship with God gets right, how they do things is right. They're going back to elders, spiritual leaders who know you who live among you to, to do the case and to do the trials and to deem what is fair. And keep in mind, look at it says, it says, let in our cities, those who have taken wives come. This is each man, each context, right? Once again, this is not a blanket statement. You know, so one man's living with like four harlots and, and he has one wife and, and five kids at home versus one guy's just dwelling with one woman and he's about to leave that woman. I mean, 
do you deal with them the same? What's the punishment? And so, once again, this is case by case by case, unique to their situation. And I believe that what we, what we don't see at the surface level of the text, but when you study the context and you, when you read the words carefully, is, is even how they go about this is tender. Right? And they didn't want to do it in one day or two days. Why did they say that? They said, because we've greatly transgressed in this matter. So let's handle this with care. Let's take our time and let's not try to do this fast just because we're in the rain. Now notice verse 15. It says, only Jonathan, the son of Eshiel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Mishalem and Shebathai, the Levite, supported them. So what you hear, what you see here is, is a, opposition from a few leaders. Now what we know about Jonathan and what we know about Jehaziah is that they are not listed among the the guilty parties later in chapter 10. So we assume that they agree with Ezra, uh, but for some reason they dissent. Now Meshalem, that name is mentioned later in the list, but this this Meshulem uh, came with Ezra arrived with Ezra. So there was not enough time for him to take a foreign wife. So, so uh, we don't think that this is the same Mishalim that's, that's listed in uh, verse 20, 29 of chapter 10. This is not, he, is, he himself is also not guilty of intermarriage and idolatry. So why would they dissent? Why would they oppose? Now, some commentators, some commentators believe that they wanted harsher punishment. They wanted this to be done quicker, and they wanted, they didn't care for the case by case. They just, maybe every man who's guilty should be put to death. I don't know. You know, were they calling for capital punishment? That's what we can assume. But either way, they disagreed with the ruling. But the point of listing here, them to hear, is, is not to show that there were dis- disagreement, was to show how very little people disagreed and how the majority agreed that this needed to be dealt with in the way that Ezra led them to deal with it. Now we'll wrap up in verses 16 and 17. Notice, it says, Then the returned exiles did so. They obeyed. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now, the first day of the first month would have taken them a span of three months. So this is a three-month process. A three-month process. So that leads to the big idea. The big idea, what we see here today, is that the real crisis is not intermarriage. The real crisis is trying to deal with sin apart from Christ. The real crisis is trying to deal with sin apart from Christ Because the consequence is dire. Look at what's happening here. The broken marriages, the children who are destroyed, the the type of putting away that some would misidentify as divorce, right? And, And the questions that come about a broken society. But they had to. They had no other way. All they had was the law. And so here are a few applications for you. Idolatry is a heart problem. But if you were to go to God and say, God, give me five steps to deal with idolatry, you know that that's not going to work. You're either going to idolize the steps and then get discouraged when it doesn't work. How many of you have tried that? 
hey, let me discipline myself. I'm going to make myself five steps to deal with my sin. And then you find yourself falling into sin once again. Why? Because idolatry is a heart problem. It is not just an external obedience issue. Right? And so only Christ can change the heart. And Israel did not have Christ. How do we know this? Because 25 years later, at the end of Nehemiah, you read it for yourself. They're once again in intermarriage, taking foreign wives. Israel, do you not get it? They couldn't change. Why? They didn't have Jesus. They didn't have Christ. Right, so only Christ can change the heart. The Old Testament law is merely external. The law can regulate behavior. The law can prescribe discipline. The law is powerless to eliminate the root of our sin problem. The law can't erase our guilt and shame either. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can heal us from within. And the gospel also offers the forgiveness to reconcile all of the broken relationships that have occurred because of human sin. If only Israel had their Messiah. Can you imagine these men? They send their foreign wise away. What do they say to them? I mean, forgive me? I mean, the foreign wife doesn't believe in Yahweh to begin with. What do they say to their children who are going to hate them now and hate Israel and hate God? Talking about, talking about cultivating enemies of the, of the Jewish faith here, right? I mean, these, these men who have sinned and dwelt with these women and have children, and now they're sending their children away, they're going to hate their dads. Where, what power do they have to bring about reconciliation and forgiveness? What example do they have of human, humans laying themselves down to make atonement for the sins of others? What, what do they have? And then when, they, when these men go back to their Jewish wives, what do they have? What can they say to the, oh, please forgive me? I failed to love you as Christ loved the church. Will you forgive me over time in the name of Christ? Can we go to Christ-centered counseling? Can we go through Christ and gospel-centered counseling through CCEF? Can we, can we go through counseling? There is no gospel yet. It, it, it's like, hey, I had to come back to you because I, I'm repentant because the law says so. Right? The heart is not changed. COVID has revealed for us some of our idols and some of our sins. But our, our hope is in Christ. And our sin problems have always been there. COVID has just accelerated and revealed some of our relational issues. Some of our, if our marriage was rocky before COVID, COVID has probably brought out more of those relational issues. If we weren't that involved with our kids and now we're forced to be with them or to teach them school, and if we wanted to escape to work before and now we're having to face our kids, COVID has just revealed that and accelerated it. The answer is not more principles, laws, or how-tos. The answer is in Christ. The answer is in loving God. And when we love God through Christ, then we will love people that God has placed in our lives and we will have the right heart. And the right heart will lead us to find the right solutions. But this also begins with how we read our Bibles. As Christians, do we read our Bibles looking for how-to, quick fixes, microwave culture? I'm reading my Bible looking for a solution. Okay, the Old Testament principle is to confess. Okay, I need to confess. And then I need to go and, oh, divorce? Oh, no, it doesn't mean divorce. It means to put away. No, you can't apply it like that. Right? You need to look at this in light of the New Testament. So go home. Go confess your sins. Right? But when you confess, what do you do after that? How does your heart turn from confession to consecration to confirmation? Right? How do you change? How do you conform to Christ's likeness? You need Christ. And so that is why 
What we propose to you here from this pulpit is to preach every single sermon through the lens of Jesus Christ. That every single sermon has a principle that must be applied through the lens of the New Testament gospel and fulfilled in Christ. Look, Israel had the law. They had the principles. They had the how-tos. They had so many laws, but they find themselves in sin over and over again because they don't have Christ. And so that is why we preach Christ and Christ crucified. The real crisis is not just sin. The real crisis is trying to deal with sin apart from Christ. Beloved, next week we're going to pick up part two and we're going to get deeper into how Christ bears our shame and our sin and instead we bear his name. And if we bear his name, then we have actually the solution for all of life's problems. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you today and we look at this very hard text. Thank you for giving us clarity because we have Christ. We can understand it and rightly interpret it. Left alone in its Old Testament context, Lord, it leaves us hopeless, helpless, and in a dire situation, judged by the law. But Father, we know that we are not under the law, but we are under the gospel. And Lord, you change us from within with the new covenant. So Lord, I pray for anyone listening who does not have Christ, that you would save them, that you would draw them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. For everyone who's listening at home, Father, I pray that you would, you would draw them closer this morning in their love for Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, as you're sitting and worshiping at home, will you please rise from your seats where you are and allow me to bless you with a benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. Go in God's peace. Have a blessed Sunday.